Thank you, Jesus. First Timothy chapter 4. See what else I can forget today. as far I won't mention any names but what you're going to hear today is the Cliff Notes version of this message uh, it won't seem like it by the time it's done but it is the short version some of y'all don't even know what Cliff Notes are do you? <laughs> I just thought of that do they even use that anymore? No, I don't think so. Not with the internet. Anyway, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some, thank God not all, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared, with a hot iron. Before you're seated, greet one of our guests, our visitors, to let them know how much we appreciate them being here with us. It seems like the family always comes out for a dedication, so we'll have to figure out who we're going to dedicate next Sunday. I told Shane, I said, after we're done with Sawyer, I'm going to pick you up and hold you, and then we're going to dedicate you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems like for a long, long time, there wasn't a lot of talk or mentioning concerning the coming of the Lord. But lately in the last, well, ever since COVID, I guess, there is an increased sense of awareness uh, within the apostolic community about the nearness of the coming of the Lord and uh, those upon the wall, I say that distinctly, those that are upon the wall who are watching and praying are now beginning to sound the alarm that we are very near if we have not entered the final countdown uh, leading up to the end of this age. It has been said by numerous apostolic preachers that the post-COVID world will be much different than the pre-COVID world, and I believe that most of them that say that uh, say with conviction that it is God's will that we do not go back to the pre-COVID state of apathy and lethargy that we found ourselves in. Part of the reason why the post-COVID world will be different from the pre-COVID world is because of geopolitical and corporate powers and entities that are now uh, controlled by the spirit of Antichrist, but it is also... Uh, because God is going to use these things to wake his church up. Sometimes it's hard to get out of bed because it just feels so good to lay there. Well, God's going to 
see that it doesn't feel so good to just lay around in apathy and do nothing as we approach the coming of the Lord. So the question that is on everybody's mind, and I really don't hear uh, a lot being said about this in uh, among the prophetic ministry of the apostolic community, but what is on all of our mind is where does the church stand in all of this? There's no question that as God uh, that God is gradually removing the covering that he has had upon America for better the last 200 years or so. He is preparing also as this covering is gradually peeled away. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but it's gradually being removed. Thank God he is not just ripping it off. But as that covering is pulled back, he is also preparing to judge a nation that has rejected every warning from God to repent and to turn back to him. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think sometimes that we quote scripture so many times that it loses its edge, that it, it's like a song we've heard uh, for about the 300th time. It used to really get us feeling the Holy Ghost, and now it's just another song on the radio or just another song the worship team sings. We have heard this verse of Scripture so much to the point that we really don't even give it much attention. But the rock upon which Jesus built his church is none other than the word of God. And that is what I have come to preach to you all about today. The word of God in a troubled world. The word of God. Here we go. The word of God. We're around it every day been a part of our lives for year after year after year. And so when you even mention the word of God, there sometimes can even be a little bit of dread that enters into our soul because uh, of what the word of God represents. But our open stand against sin and our unwavering commitment to apostolic doctrine is going to cause intense political social and economic pressure to be exerted upon the church between now and the coming of the Lord. I know that there's a fine line between speaking the truth about these things and planting fear in the hearts of God's people. I've come to tell you our people are already afraid of what's on the way. The saints of God that have, that have even considered what's on the morning and the evening news. They're already in contemplation of the dread of what may be coming our way. Let me remind you, Jesus said, I built my church upon the rock of my word. And the gates of hell shall not, never will be able to prevail against it. And so because we are built upon a solid foundation, 
Jesus knows what we are capable of enduring. And he knows what we are capable of accomplishing even in an evil and a wicked world. Some of the things that we have relied on in the past are going to be stripped away from us. But God is going to give us new things to work with. God is not going to leave us comfortless. He's not going to leave us powerless. He's not going to leave us alone. Hallelujah. Revelation chapter 1, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness. And the first begotten of the dead. And the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The number seven simply refers to completeness or to fullness. Obviously, there are not seven spirits of God. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him, him, not them, him in spirit and in truth. There is a strong consensus among scholars that the seven churches of Asia Minor are representative of the church age from the time of Jesus all the way up unto the coming of the Lord. If that consensus is true, then the last church that's represented is the church of Laodicea. God help us. But different complications and challenges would present themselves within each period of time that these churches would represent. Therefore, the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor were a prophetic glimpse into how the church in each period of time would perform within their particular set of challenges, within the particular spiritual, social, and political atmosphere within which they would exist. Each letter opens with, in a very similar fashion, and they have two very, every one of these seven letters has two very unique things in common. Regardless of the content of the letter, that's written to the church, each letter has two things in common. Revelation 2 and 1. These are not going to be on the screen. Revelation 2 and 1. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith he. What are you writing, John? I'm writing the word of God that's been dictated to me by Jesus Christ himself. Revelation 2 and 8, under the church, or under the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These things saith the first 
and the last. It doesn't matter when you're living. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter what the situation is around the time that this church exists. We're going to give you a word from God, and the word of God is going to get you through. Revelation 2.12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things saith he. Verse 18, unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write. What are you going to write? A love letter? You're going to write about the signs of the times? What are you going to write? I'm going to write what the Spirit of God tells me to write. These things saith the Son of God. Revelation 3.1. Under the angel of the church in Sardis write. These things saith he. Each and every letter contains the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia these things saith he. Verse 14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right. These things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness. I want you to notice, not one of these letters was addressed to the church body. All seven of these letters was not addressed to the church, but to the angel of the church. You can get quiet on me, not going to change what I'm going to say. The angel of the church is the pastor. Why was the letter directed to the angel of the church? Because the pastor is directly undeniably and indisputably responsible for the church in which he pastors. The Friday night prayer meeting, just before we left at quarter to two in the morning, we said if the Lord wrote a letter to us, what would that letter say? Today we honor our pastor, and rightly so, because you will never rise above his faith. You will never rise above his vision. You will never rise above his leadership. You will never rise above his anointing. So you need to pray for him that God turns him inside out. You need to pray for him that God wakes him up every morning at 2 o'clock and begins to reveal things to him so that God can reveal them to us because if God doesn't show it to him, we'll never see it. We'll never hear it. We'll never receive it. My God, my God, as the pastor goes, so goes the church, and it was my intent to have them come and pray for them. We've already done that, and I hope that you will continue to pray for them after this day, after this day goes forward. These things, saith he, whatever the circumstances each church found themselves in, in whatever their spiritual condition happened to be, Jesus sent them his word, his word. I don't know what you're going through. 
I don't know what you're facing. I'm going to tell you, in the best of times, when we are all pursuing the American dream, sometimes we go through a hell in our lives. I can't imagine what it's going to be like when the American dream turns into the American nightmare. But I'm here to tell you, God will always send his word. His word in these letters did one of two things. They either encouraged or they rebuked. I'm telling God sincerely, don't hold back nothing on me. If I need rebuking, bring it on. Amen. If I, if I need to be reproved or corrected, you grind me to powder. I'd rather in a heaven as powder or as in a hell as, as whole. I want God to speak to us. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24, Therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon the rock. My Lord Jesus. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. We're very familiar with sand here in southwest Florida. We can relate. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. There's a story that I like to tell. Some of you have heard the story before. I didn't know if I would be telling it today or not. It's a story about... A man and his wife are on the highway, Memorial Weekend, on the way to a family celebration, and there is a terrible accident on the highway of which they are involved in, and uh, they had been spatting along the way, probably arguing about nothing really important, and uh, she was killed outright in the collision, and he was thrown from the vehicle but was hanging on to life. She immediately finds herself standing at the gate of heaven. Peter is standing at the gate and greets her, and he said, you can come in, but before I can let you in, you have to spell the password. She says, oh, my gosh, I've always been horrible at spelling. She's all worried. Okay, what is it? He said, love. If, if there is sweat there, she wiped the sweat off her brow. She said, L-O-V-E. He said, great, come on in. She goes through the gates in heaven, and it, right after she passes through the gate, the phone rings. Peter answers the phone, has a short conversation, hangs up and says, listen, I have, I have to leave for a few minutes. Can you watch the gate? You know how this works. She says, sure. 
Peter walks away. In the meantime, they cannot resuscitate her husband. He passes on the roadside and zap. He finds himself standing at the gate, looking at his wife. And she says, sweetheart, I can't let you in unless you spell the password. He does that rolling eye. Okay, what is it? She said, Czechoslovakia. You know that there is going to be a final exam, and you're going to be judged. So I, I will bait Acts 2.38. Yeah, I know. In a split second, in the rapture or when you pass from this life, God is going to compare your life to what's written in this book. If you don't know what's written in the book, how do you know that you're going to pass the test? Because God wants wink at ignorance. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So I'm going to ask you, if you knew you're going to have to take a test, don't you think you'd study for the exam? It's all you got to do is believe in Jesus. You better get in the book and find out that that's false doctrine. That's false doctrine. That's what the devil wants you to believe. There are epistles written by the apostles under the inspiration of God, and you need to know what they say. So as we stand on the shifting sands of time and eternity, the only sound, stable, and secure place upon which to build your life is going to be the Word of God. 2,000 years ago, the inspired Word of God came through the pen of the Apostle Paul to prophetically declare the inherent dangers that the end-time church would face. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly. Paul wrote many of the epistles, but now he said this is, a, this is such a strong urging of the Spirit. It's not the still small voice of God. The Spirit is speaking expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. He emphatically confirmed that the redeemed of God are not exempt from the evil influences that would pervade the world in the years leading up to the end of the age. I'm just going to say this. It's up to you. You do what you're going to do. But if you haven't woke up 
to the Disney Corporation yet, you better ask God to show you. They're putting out videos now to educate little bitty kids about the transgender community. They're already now making cartoons to teach children how uh, to reject the gender they were born with and to transfer or transform into a different gender. You better wake up to the Disney I heard a Mormon one day on the radio said, when are we, for the sake of our own personal convictions, going to turn some of this stuff off? A Mormon said that. I know you're all mad at me now, aren't you? So in the most wicked and godless world that would ever exist, that's the world we're living in right now, God has provided his church with the means to not only survive the unnerving challenges that the church will face, but God has given us the means to thrive in the face of un told evil untold evil remember Paul talked about seducing spirits sister Belinda told me about an encounter she had with an evil spirit in Ohio couldn't breathe a spirit of seduction doesn't come at you that way it comes at you with little characters and costumes and cartoons and it's a seducing spirit. I had a book years ago in my library about the New Age movement. They don't we won't talk much about New Age anymore, do we? I had a picture of a beautiful woman looking in a pond, and the image of her in the pond was of a, a, a demon spirit, but she was very beautiful, seducing spirits. So I want to make it clear that it will be virtually impossible to navigate through the tempestuous waters and through the cultural darkness that permeates this end time without the supernatural power of God. Without the supernatural power of God. And without the infallible, eternal, and inerrant word of God. Now, I know what some of y'all are already thinking, that, well, the Bible's so hard for me to understand, and... So I just, I really can't get much into it. It's, uh, it's not in chronological order anyway, and, and so it's not that interesting to me. I'm hoping that today that there will be born within you a new hunger and thirst and interest in the Word of God. And uh, I know men that have total recall. I mean, they can read a lot of 2 Corinthians 5 and 6, and, they, you know, and it just gets me somebody comes up, have you ever read 1 Corinthians 9, 14? Probably. Yeah? What do you think about that? Well, why don't you tell me what it says, and then I'll tell you what I think about it. Most of us don't have total recall. We can remember a lot of Scripture. We just can't remember exactly where it's at. 
And so that keeps some of us from, well, since, you know, I don't, I don't read engineering manuals. I don't get anything out of it. We were, uh, Nate and Amanda came over last week, and, and, and he, he is a, he's in tech and high tech. I mean, upper high tech, and he's in the stuff. I wouldn't read those manuals. I wouldn't get anything out of it. And so a lot of you feel that way about the Bible. I don't get that much out of it, so I don't read it. That has to change today. And I'm going to help you with that a little bit later. So Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful. That promise, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. The word provoke is not used in a wrong connotation. Provoke unto love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching uh, in uh uh, this is the inspired word of God, and it's referring to those who can see the day approaching. Who, who does that fit? It didn't fit the people that Paul wrote it to. That was 2,000 years ago. It didn't really apply to them at that particular time. And up through the ages, there have been churches in, in all these different uh, periods of time up till now that that really didn't apply to them. No other generation of apostolics have ever met this qualification, qualification better than we do right now. We can see. You know, the word see can be visually see or see with understanding. We can see both ways. We can see the day approaching. Say, well, they've been saying that for the last 55 years. No, they've been saying that for 2,000 years. But never before have we been able to see the things that we are seeing. Jesus says, so in like manner, Mark 13, 29, when ye shall see these things come to pass. You know, he knew that the news was going to be broadcast globally, 24 hours a day. So he knew what he was talking about when he said, when you can see these things on Fox News, or God forbid that you watch CNN, but on Fox News or some other conservative station, when you see these things come to pass, what do you do now? Nothing. You just know that it's at the doors. Furthermore, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, now all these things happened unto them for examples that they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. I really have to skip over some things. My time is just running away from me. But there is value and there are things to learn by studying the historical deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage in their turbulent journey through the that was meant to be two years and turned out to be 40 years because of their lack of faith. What they experienced and how they conducted themselves in their journey from bondage to statehood is supposed to teach us upon whom the ends of the world have come so we will learn some things that will enable us to survive and thrive the things or the journey that we'll be passing through between now and the coming of the Lord. So after analyzing 
these things, uh, what can we possibly learn that would benefit us today? Well, you'd think it would be something really deep, right? Some really deep thought or mystery, but it's really not. It's really not deep at all. Exodus chapter 16. We know that God fed them with manna for 40 years. Right? I mean, our, our Sunday school children know that. Sometimes in their innocence, they're looking for manna in the grocery store. But, of course, it's not there. Exodus 16 and 4 then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day. Every day. I just want to comment that there's a reason why the mercies of God are new every morning. Every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. It shall come to pass that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. This is not a weekly walk with God. This is not a weekly relationship with God. I would hate to be able to just meet my wife on Sunday and be separated from her for the next seven days until we meet again at the house of God or in some other place. So I want you to note that God placed the children of Israel in this time of their spiritual and uh, uh, intellectual development, placed them in a situation where they absolutely needed him to survive. You see, I've been in home missions when there was no food. Sleeping in a sleeping bag on the platform of a building that was 117 years old that we intended to turn into a church. It was an old church building with no refrigerator and no food, just trusting God from day to day for our next meal. I know what it's like. It's been a long time. But we learned some things during that experience. We don't think much about God's provision when we go out and eat three times a week. And our refrigerators are full of food, but God put them in a circumstance where you're going to need me to get through this. You need to understand that. So God or Jesus instructed us to pray something. Give us this day, today, our daily bread. This daily bread is twofold. It's natural bread and spiritual bread. And Jesus is the ultimate provider of them both. You may not realize it right now, but without him, our cupboards wouldn't be full. Our refrigerator wouldn't be full. Without him, it, it wouldn't be that way. But we don't really think of it that way, do we? Because we worked, we earned the money, we went and bought it, we brought it home, we put it in there. 
and significant to his divine provision, it must be partaken of every single day. Psalm 78, 23, though he commanded the clouds from above, opened the doors of heaven and the rain, and had rained down manna upon them to eat, and had given them the corn of heaven, man did eat angels' food, he sent them meat to the full. And it's written in Numbers 21 and 5 that they got sick and tired of eating manna. And they started complaining about it, and they spoke against God, and they spoke against Moses, and they accused God of bringing them out of Egypt into the wilderness to die. They complained about this bread. Gosh, couldn't you come up with something better than this? Can you imagine that? The Bible says that their soul loathed this light bread. So let it be noted that the Israelites came to loathe the manna just like some people today loathe the instructions, the admonition, the uh, commandments, the laws, the statutes of God's word. We don't want anybody telling us how to live. We don't want anything telling us how to dress. We don't want anything telling us what we ought to or we ought not to be doing. And so as they loathe the manna, there are people eh, that they love the word of God when it talks about blessing. But when you get into commandments and requirements, especially when they're offered under the grace of God, oh, my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. And then is when the loathing takes place and the terminology changes from blessing to legalism. What the Israelites did not know was that according to Asaph, the psalmist, what God had provided them to eat was the corn of heaven, referring to it as angels' food. Every time my wife cooks, I eat angels' food. <laughs> Talking about survival here. <laughs> I don't know if the angels actually ate this man or not. I've really never tried to verify or validate whether they did or not because it doesn't matter to me one way or the other. But what I do know is the implication is there that manna was superior to any other food that man had ever eaten except for the fruit of the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden before the sin of Adam and Eve. The manna was what enabled Caleb I'm going to leap over a few things here for Sister Carolyn's benefit. Somebody wake her up. Told you to bring a pillow. That's okay. Go ahead. Caleb said, Joshua 14 and 10, I am this day fourscore and five years old. That's 85. 
And yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war both to go out. and I'm not even as strong today as I was yesterday. <laughs> and you think I'm kidding. I get tired walking to the gym just looking at the weights in the rack. <laughs> Anyway, what I really want to tell you this afternoon is that God has provided us with a divine substance. It's not only equal to the manna, but it's superior to it. Because when in the hand-to-hand -hand combat with Satan, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So in this critical time, it is not good for us to be spiritually weak and anemic and malnourished because a lack of the word of God. 1 Timothy 3, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving being deceived. Verse 15, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. All scripture, even the genealogies, ladies and gentlemen, is given by, how else could they have known the order of everybody's birth and their name? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Perfect. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In the deteriorating spiritual, political, and social environment that we find ourselves in, all Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, things you understand and things you do not understand, all Scripture is highly profitable. And in a time such as this, what we need is doctrine. We need reproof. I said we need reproof. We need correction. And we need instruction in righteousness. Virtually everything in this life is temporary. How many of you over 30 still own the first car that you bought? Because everything is temporary. Everything. If I had the first car I bought, and it was in that condition, man, would I have some money in my pocket. 16 years old, and I was happy to buy a 1964 Chevrolet Impala four-door. You'd think I'd want a sports car. I was just happy to have four wheels that had a motor under the hood. Everything's temporary. Everything, everybody has an expiration date. Everything will perish with the using, the Bible says, except for one thing, and that is the Word of God. Everything in this church, the chairs, the carpet, the pulpit, the walls, the drywall, the ceiling, the sound system, the projection system, everything in this building will perish, but one thing, what I'm holding in my hand. Everything will perish. 
When you get up tomorrow, I want you to think about there's only one thing in my house that is eternal. It's what's in, the, in, the, in between the covers of my Bible. And that it would be criminal sometime throughout that day to not open this book up and partake of that which is eternal. The Bible says, Hebrews 4, 12, the word of God is quick and powerful. It's alive and it's powerful. Heaven and earth shall pass away, Matthew 24, 35, but my word shall not pass away. You'll find no gravestone where it marks the place where the word of God has been buried. As the weather turned cold one year, the Lord spoke to Jeremiah, the prophet, informing him what was going to happen to Israel's southern kingdom of Judah, King Zedekiah, and the people did not turn from their wicked ways. And so the prophet then turned to Baruch, his scribe, and began to dictate uh, words that the Spirit of God was speaking and revealing to him, and Baruch wrote them down upon a scroll. Because Jeremiah was not allowed in the temple, he sends Baruch in his place on a day of fasting that he may read from the scroll in hopes that the people would hear and repent. So Baruch goes, he stands at the gate of the temple and reads out loud, I must admit, uh, so that everyone can hear the contents of the scroll. Members of King Zedekiah's court was in attendance in the temple at that time, and they were deeply troubled at the words that Baruch was reading. And so they asked him, is this really the words of Jeremiah? Are these his exact words? Yep, this is Jeremiah's exact words, word for word. So they said, would you mind if we would take the scroll to Zedekiah and read these words to the king? Of course, Baruch said, no, of, of course, take them. I'm sure uh, it would be pleasing to the prophet. So being that it was winter, Zedekiah warmed himself uh, in front of a fireplace as he listened to Jehudai read Jeremiah's poignant words. It was no surprise that King Zedekiah did not take what was written on the scroll very well. In fact, he became enraged the more that Jehudai read. And so every time that Jehudai would read a few columns from the scroll, the king would reach over with a knife and cut out that part of the scroll, crumple it up, and angrily throw it into the fireplace. When the Lord informed Jeremiah that what Baruch had transcribed from his words, Jeremiah repeated these same words to Baruch, who wrote them down on another scroll. But this is what is ironic about that. While the impressive temple in which Baruch read the scroll is long gone, while the king's beautiful winter palace was eventually destroyed, while even the great imperial Babylon that threatened Judah at that particular time was consumed by the Medes and by the Persians. The words that were committed to the flimsiest material 
are still with us today translated into over 704 languages. All the great edifices of that time, the great kingdoms of that time are gone, but we still have those words that Jeremiah transcribed to Baruch. How is this possible? It is possible because the fire cannot destroy it. It's possible because moths cannot devour it. It's possible because time cannot erase it. Because culture cannot cancel it. Because darkness cannot conceal it. And because hell cannot change it. So Isaiah wrote in 55 and 11, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. I'm going to tell you, you can receive it or not. To not read this book tomorrow will be a sin. To let 24 hours go by and not open the pages of this book and read from the holy, inerrant, infallible, and eternal words of the book will be a sin. So I'm telling you today, in the shifting sands of the world we live in, you better get a hold of something that's real. As much as we like church, in a few minutes it'll be over, the lights will be turned out, and we'll go home. It'll be done. It'll be another service in the history books. But this book is still going to be alive and well. We may not be able to recreate the exact blessing we felt in that service, but we can go to the book and recreate God's word any time we want. In a broken world, you better get a hold of something that is unbreakable. And there's only one thing that I know is unbreakable. In a toxic world polluted by sin, you need to get a hold of something that's pure and something that is undefiled. It is the Word of God. In a world consumed by deception, you need to get a hold of something that's ultimately and undeniably true. It's the Word of God. This is not the first thing you read every morning. It ought to be. It ought to be before you read your favorite book or the newspaper or anything else. It ought to be the first thing that goes into your mind after your cup of coffee is made, of course. In a world where everything is counterfeit, you need to get a hold of something that's real and genuine. Something that's firm. A strong foundation, unshakable. No storm can shake it. 
in the spiritual darkness that's permeating our world. You need to get a hold of the light. In a world controlled by the spirit of Antichrist, you need to get a hold of Jesus Christ. You want to know one of the biggest surprises to the teachers and proponents uh, of uh, prophecy in the last days? The Bible told us about the bear and the leopard and the lion. The eagle's wings that broke off of the lion and told us about nation. We're rising against nation. What has surprised all of us is that the spirit of Antichrist is being manifest in business and corporations. We were not prepared for that. We were not ready for that. We're blindsided by the fact that these large corporations are exerting the spirit of Antichrist over its employees and over the rest of the world. It doesn't matter because God is going to get us through anyway. And so I get it. I'm bringing this to a close, semi-close. You don't want the Bible or anybody else, for that matter, telling you how to live. But if you don't want that, then why do you think God gave us pastors? Pastors gave us a pastor to tell us how to live right in a wrong world. Speak to us, pastor. Teach us these things. Teach us holiness. Teach us standards. Teach us morality. Teach us righteousness. We're here to receive the word of God. The fact of the matter is God's ways are not our ways. Never was, never will be. And there are people, I hope you're not here, but there are people that you just made up your mind. I went as far as I'm going with this. I'm not going any further. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you teach. I'm not going to do any more than what I'm doing right now. I'm not going any further than this. I remember a message Wayne Huntley preached years ago, probably because of the times we were at, because we were present when he preached it. That's the only place I can think of we would have been. He said, if you want to catch the bus to heaven, what are you doing at the train station? It's going to tell you the bus schedule, where to go, and how to get there. I've gone as far as I'm gone. Well, I want you to know that it will be worth it no matter what commitment or sacrifice that you have to make. I've always been grateful. Some of you, this will be completely over your head. Uh, You will not remember this because you're too young, but you all remember the Moonies in the airport? The Moonies would walk around, their long robes and their shaved heads. I've always, thank you, Lord, you didn't make me go to the airport and wear a white robe and shave my head. Thank you, Jesus. But if it was in the book, that's where we'd be hanging out this afternoon. (laughs) You're going to have to show me chapter and verse in the King James Version of the Bible. (laughs) So Peter talked about the end of our faith. I'm not going to read it, the salvation of our souls. And Acts 2.38 is not the end. It is the beginning. Some people takes them years to get to Acts 2.38. And once they get there, oh, God, I finally made it. No, that's just the doorway into the kingdom of God. 
the entrance into the kingdom of God. So every book, every manuscript, every newspaper, musicians, worship team, you can join me on the platform. Every magazine, article, periodical, journal, it doesn't matter. Everything that's ever been written by man has one thing in common. There's always a conclusion. There's always an end, and the end. The Bible, however, does not conclude with an ending as does every other book that's ever been written, every other manuscript that's ever been written. It concludes with a beginning. A beginning. I was talking to a guy at the gym a number of years ago, and he wasn't a Christian man. I don't know how we got on the subject of death. I was talking about it rather gleefully. He said, you're kind of morbid, aren't you? Well, death to us is not the same as it is to you. Death to us is, is a uh, promotion. Death to a child of God is a promotion. Not the end. It's the beginning. Jesus took the sting out of death. He's got the keys of death and hell. And so in Revelation 1 and 8, he said unto John, Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Verse 10, John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. So Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, or the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet and everything in between. But he's also the first and last letter of every written language that has ever been spoken among men. He is the first and he is the last. Those of you that have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and have received the gift of the Holy Ghost, you have made a good beginning. But don't stop there because you are now, that's where you start your journey toward the end of your faith that Peter talked about and the end that Jesus spoke to John on the Isle of Patmos about. Revelation 21, 1 through 5, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and, and, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he shall, he that set, 
upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write. That's the word of God. Write. For these words are true and faithful. On the afternoon, I want to tell a story and then we're going to open the altar. Because I believe that there are many of us who shy away from reading the Word of God uh, because you're not really sure about everything you're reading. I'd like to tell you that I understand everything in this book. But the things I don't understand is what makes me curious. I wonder what that means. I wonder what that is. I've been in this thing 48 years. Brother Galan, you talked about the Holy Ghost. And you spoke of something this morning that God gave me a revelation of. Was it this morning or yesterday? I don't remember, but it was, it was worth shouting over and crying over. Because we've said how many dozens and dozens of times that and 3,000 were added to the church. 3,000 souls. Have you ever wondered about how that took place? God showed it to me. You see, when you open your heart up to the book, God will show you things. It's not bound by intellect. It's not bound by natural understanding. We think, well, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, so how am I going to understand the word of God? Because God will reveal it to you. I'm just going to give you an example. 3,000 were added to the church, right? What image does that conjure up? None. 120 in an upper room, sitting around a room, Sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. We can visualize that a little bit. Cloven tongues like a sapphire set upon each of them. We can visualize that a little bit. And they all received the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave the other. We can visualize all of a sudden 120 people start, I mean, spontaneously speaking in other tongues. We can, we can wrap our mind around that, but then 3,000 are added. 3,000 souls are added, and we have no visual image of that whatsoever. Let me help you with that. God showed me as I went out to a body of water and all 12 apostles stepped into the water and lines began to form through the water from the bank to each apostle. And as they were baptizing people in Jesus' name, the power of God fell on that lake and people all over the waters we're dancing and splashing in the waters and receiving the Holy Ghost. And people in line were, were getting all excited. The Holy Ghost fell upon that body of water. And each apostle would have had to baptize 250 people. What a day that was. When you begin to read the word of God, God will open the windows of heaven and show you things, if not in your mind and spirit, in your dreams. My God. 
that we just think, I don't get that much out of it. I don't understand theology. I don't understand that much. And I get it. I bought a book by Brother Menard one time about justification. I got through about three chapters. I did not even know where he was coming from. So I get it. January 15, 2009, you may recall Captain Chesley Sullenberger lifted his A320 off the ground, turned the hulking 30-ton mass of metal carrying 155 souls on board south from the New York's LaGuardia Airport towards Charlotte, North Carolina. By all rights, they would have probably be landing within another hour and a half, maybe two hours at the most. But as the plane hurtled upward, they hit a flock of geese, and uh, both engines were suddenly destroyed, but having reached only an altitude of 3,000 feet, uh, the plane was too low to even attempt to glide to a nearby runway. It only took a fraction of a second for Captain Sullenberger to come to a very dismal conclusion. In a split second, he figured the only chance that they had to survive was to land that plane in the Hudson River. And he immediately began turning the descending plane that was plummeting to the ground in that direction. In that moment of crisis, that emergency, unexpected, unprepared, out of nowhere, in an instant, he didn't have time to whip out the flight instruction manual to lick his fingers and start thumbing through it. He didn't have time to look up on YouTube and watch a video on what to do in case of a similar emergency. He didn't have time to thumb through a 737 manual and, and check the schematics of the airplane to see what it was, it was uh, capable of doing or not doing. But it was in that moment that the Sullenberger's uh, thousands of hours of study, it was in an instant that the endless repetition, the hundreds of simulations that he had been in, the intense training for every conceivable scenario to control over every thought and over every action. And that day there was what they're still calling the miracle on the Hudson. I would not dare to dispute that the hand of God was not engaged somewhere in guiding this plane to safely. But if you would ask Captain Sullenberger, what was the one thing in your possession that gave you the ability to stay calm, gave you the skill, gave you the capability to do what everyone would say is virtually impossible, he would probably answer this. It was not one thing. It was everything. It was everything. My Lord. My God. It's not one verse of Scripture. It's not one moment of revelation. It's not one trip to an altar. It's not one prayer meeting. It's not one 
uh, chapter out of the Bible. It's not one book out of the Bible. What is going to give us the power, the ability, the calmness, the skill, the, the capability to land on the runway of heaven, passing through turbulent winds of the end time? It's not one thing. It's everything. Would you stand with me? Not one thing. It's everything. Everything. There are apostolic doctrines that we hold dear, apostolic precepts that we would be willing to literally die rather than recant. And many already have. But it's not just apostolic precept. It's not just Acts 2.38. It's everything. It's everything. What you read in the morning is not going to necessarily blow your mind. If you start in Genesis, you're going to read through some Arduous, long chapters of genealogies. You think it's over till you get to the book of Numbers. My gosh. Read it. Read it. Because you don't know what you're taking into your soul that you're going to need somewhere down the road. It won't be one verse of Scripture maybe that will come to mind. It will be everything in the book that will get you through. I'm not saying that we do not need the winds of God's Spirit under our wings. I'm not, I'm not disannulling the necessity of prayer, praying in the Spirit and praying in the Holy Ghost, intercessory prayer and all, and all of that. My God, that's essential, but not at the expense of ignoring what's in the book. I've said to countless people, they say, I really need an answer from God. I'll tell you what you do. You pray, you tell God what you need, then you start reading the book. If you're reading the book and looking for an answer, I don't mean just thumbing through the pages. You get in, you just read. God will, God will put something in neon green for you if that's from God. But if you are searching the book and reading the book and opening your spirit to God, if it doesn't come while you're reading and studying, it'll come from a minister that's preaching the word of God. The answer will come. But you do your part and let them do their part. My God. So living the Christian faith, it can be very complicated, can it? Acting in a biblical Christian manner. Keeping one's head screwed on straight when everyone else is losing theirs. It requires a commitment very similar to Captain Sullenberger's commitment to excellence. Lukewarm won't do it. Part-time Christianity won't do it. Sitting in the bleacher seats won't do it. I'm going to tell you in no uncertain terms, it's going to take the most committed, dedicated, consecrated people of God that's ever lived to make it 
down the stretch of the end time. I know you don't want to hear that. So what if I die before then? Well, then it's going to take that consecration, dedication for you to pass from wherever you die into the streets of gold. Laodicea is the final church. Don't let it be the epitaph on the gravestone of our dispensation. Don't let it be the epitaph upon the church of our age. Let's defy that spirit. Let's claim what God has promised us in his word. Let's be the church of Philadelphia. Jesus said, I have the key of David, and I will open that which no man can shut, and I will shut that that no man can open. I want you to come to this altar sincerely seek the Lord and pray that God will give you a hunger, a desire, an appetite, even a curiosity, again, for the Word of God, that you will go home with a shovel with the intention of digging into the Word. God, show me what I need to know. Show me how to live. Show me, God, what you want me to do. Show me your Word, Jesus. Reveal these things to me. Take the mystery out of the book and write it upon the blessed table of my heart. In the name of Jesus, it's going to be what gets us through. It's going to be what will withstand the storm that's coming. It's going to be your strength and your might when everything else around you is crumbling. But the word of God in your heart, your mind, and your soul will give you strength.
Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, God. Just going to marinate for a few minutes in the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. Let him touch you right now in your body. Let him minister to you in the depths of your soul. Let him reach you down in the recesses of your very being. May the Lord God flow out of your belly. Rivers. Rivers. Rivers, rivers of living water, Holy Ghost, Holy One of Israel, my God, my God, my God, here we are right now, Jesus. In your hands, in your presence, in complete submission to your word and your spirit. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Come on, let's yield to the Holy Ghost right now.
my God. Lexi and John, can you come down in front of the pulpit, please? Lexi and John are getting ready to uh, go to the mission field for a few months. Lexi's already been baptized a little bit on the mission field. But I want you to take a good look at our brother because he's not going to look the same when he comes back. It's not going to be the same when he comes back. God's going to use them in a mighty way and do such a tremendous work in both of them. I want you to gather around them. <clears throat> I want you to lay hands on them. You to plead the blood over them. I want you to speak the authority of the name of Jesus upon them right now. Wherever they go, God will protect them and keep them. In the name of Jesus. May God use them and bless their ministry. Let them be a help to the missionaries and to their families and to the churches. May they come home with a fresh anointing and fresh vision and a renewed calling from God. New direction. Ah, hallelujah. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. You better look out, devil. The anointed of the Lord is stepping onto the mission field. The anointing of the Lord. They're going to do great things. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yes, yes, yes. Part the waters before them. Glory, 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 glory. That's right, brother. That's God's testimony. That he's called you to where you're going. It's the witness of the Spirit that's on you right now. Hallelujah. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That missionary asked you to clean the toilet, you put a smile on your face and head to the bathroom. And no matter what he asked you to do, he asked you to cut the grass, 
clean his house, babysit their children. Thank God. Thank God for the opportunity to be a blessing on the mission field. Praise God. We will miss you while you're gone. We will anticipate your return and the things that God will continue to do and work in your life. My God, I would trade places with you all in a heartbeat. I would. If I could be as good looking as you, brother, and as young as you with a brother like Joe, you kidding me, I would trade places. I know Joe's going, no, 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 no. Amen. We'll be praying for you. God bless everyone. Thank you for your endorsement of their ministry and their call to the mission field. God bless you. You're dismissed in the name of Jesus. Okay.